Welcome to part two of our Romeo and Juliet podcast discussion. Joining journalist Fiona Mountford and director Kimberly Sykes to discuss the role that women play in her production are Isabel Adamako Young, who plays Juliet, Emma Caniff, who plays the nurse, and Michelle Fox, who plays the regendered role of Tybalt. Well, I'm delighted to say that Kimberly and I have now been joined by three of the actors from this production. I'll introduce them to you. They're Isabel Adamako Young, who plays Juliet. Hello. Hello, Isabel. Emma Cuniff, the nurse. Hello, Emma. Hello. And Michelle Fox, who is a gender switch, and we'll talk more about that later. Tybalt. Hello, Michelle. How's it going? It's lovely to have you all here. The challenges of a COVID era production. What? Uh, what have they? What have they been? Oh. I mean, I, well, personally, I have to say that. Regions Open Air have been amazing with COVID protocols. I don't think we would have been able to, there's been, you know, there's been a lot of shows closed. There's been a lot of things. We were thankfully able to do a socially distanced performance, most of us. And I think that has helped keep people safe. From a spectator's point of view, I, if I'd seen this production at another time in history, I wouldn't have thought, oh, that's a bit odd. They're all standing a bit far apart from each other. Or any, it was none of that. None mm. of that came across as a viewing experience. So I think that's, that, that attests to the success with which you've all, you've all pulled it off. Um, I, this is a question for, for Isabel and Michelle. What is it like for Julia and Tybalt to be young people in Kimberley's very specific version of Verona? What's it like? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, um, I mean, what I love about the way that we've been making this show is, like, we look we look to the text and we look to the events to make sense of all of it. And, you know, what is, what is the world where this sequence of events happens over this incredibly brief period of time? Um, and it's just been so interesting digging into that. I think they are very different in a way, um, mm. Juliet and Tybalt, and, and it's really interesting to look at that because in some ways Juliet kind of, in terms of the gender element particularly, makes a bit more sense in our Verona in, like, she's sort of more, she's obedient, she's kind of subservient to her parents, she's kept at home mostly and so on, and then Tybalt's maybe sort of more of a question and I, I still think about how Juliet relates to Tybalt in the sense of how she looks to her cousin who's much more out on the streets, you know, interacting with other young people, being violent, these kinds of things, it's really... Well, I I find, I feel like Tybalt, when I actually came to this, when I auditioned for it, the the gender swap to me actually felt quite interesting because a lot of times, I I feel like sometimes when I used to see Romeo and Juliet, I'd be like, oh, I, like, we've all seen Tybalt, that just angry, angry young man and stuff like that, and and when you swap it, it, it didn't... It didn't even feel to me just like an angry young woman. It felt like a woman who was very affected by her surroundings, very stressed, I think, by the, by the environment around her. Yes. And feels very, in this world, feels like to be a woman, there is only, you know, I don't want that option, so what's the other option? Right. I've got to fight. So her options were basically the Juliet, stay at home, be obedient, or, or go out and... Yeah, it feels like she's yourself. got something to prove. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, can can make someone quite unhinged and quite, to me, playing her, she feels very stressed. Yeah. Um, and, and I think fighting is her release. And that what that's what made it quite interesting 
to, to play. It's quite different. And do, do, do you, did, did Tybalt, your Tybalt, did she have to work very hard to get accepted into the sort of the group of, of lads? Yeah, and I think it, it's very much that relationship between Lord Capulet and her is very different when you swap it. I think is very, it feels, it feels like under the thumb of, you know what I mean? I, I, and basically it's that whole Mercutio, Romeo, feels like the men in this world don't have to fight to be accepted. And well, she feels table, very, yeah. yeah, she feels very separate and she feels like she doesn't have friends. She has to, that's the only way that she can... Aggression is yeah. her way of constantly asserting her place in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, the more times I see Romeo and Juliet, the more convinced I am that the, mo the pivotal relationship in the play, and certainly the one with the strongest foundations, is that between the nurse and Juliet. Mm. And this is why the nurse's betrayal of Juliet feels like such a visceral blow. So Emma and Isabel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. How did you go about establishing such a lovely, easy vibe between the characters? Emma, maybe we'll start with you and then we'll come to Isabel. Oh, well, um, we obviously just start, well, we start with the text and there's so much detail in there about how um, much the nurse kind of cares for Julia and, and, and after losing her own child, she obviously becomes very um, linked to Julia and, yes. and, and, and almost takes on the mother role to an extreme, I think. But um, there's so much love between them in, in, in this text. And I think we just did lots of sort of, we did lots of great exercises where we, together, where we kind of worked on how much they care for each other, Isabel and Julia, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> Juliet and the nurse. <laughs> and yeah, that, I mean, it's so great working with Isabel. We just kind of got a really good vibe going and that's been and that brilliant. And absolutely I think is the, visible um, when one's watching it. The vibe between the two of you really bounds off the stage at the audience. It's great. Oh, well, yeah, it's a joy to play. It's interesting you talk about the betrayal and, and when, when sort of the nurse says she should marry Paris yes. and that's a really difficult corner because you feel like she is letting her down but I think the or not letting her down but you feel that she's betraying what Juliet hopes will be her you know her real love but I think the reality is I think the nurse feels there's so much danger around I mean so much danger that I think she's actually feels she's doing something to protect her that's yes. how I see it that she's She's thinking making... this is going to be a better option now. It's yes. going to be a safer option and a more... Um, this is done wisely. You know that line, this is, this is done wisely. And this I is more sensible. What's so beautiful Let's not rush. Because I think... Sorry. That that's, how I, that's how I went with it, rather than it being a horrible thing. I think what's beautiful watching... Does that make absolutely sense? Absolutely, <laughs> one gets the sense that the nurse is doing the most expedient thing. We're running out of options. The most sensible thing is that you marry Paris. And we got that. But what I got, a beautiful thing from Isabel, was the sense that, yes, she understands that it is expedient, but it's absolutely not the right answer, and it's not what Juliet wants to hear. And it's a sense almost of you taking a step back and realising that you're totally on your own in the world at this moment, and you have got to take it from here. What, what are your thoughts on that, Isabel? Very much so, yeah, yeah. I think that um, the, the sort of flow of that scene and the way coming out of, first of all, Romeo leaves, and then Juliet's confronted by her parents, and, and the staging of that particularly, I just find so sort of moving and so helpful because it starts, it starts with Juliet on the third level and she comes down, all the way down to the ground and then she's sort of circled by her parents and then gradually her father leaves, her mother leaves and then she appeals to the nurse and then the nurse, yep. you know, 
from her point of view, lets her down and isn't going to help her on the next stage. And exactly as you say, it's when she really realises, okay, this is on me now. Yeah. Um, and I mean, a, a terror because the, the nurse, obviously, the two of you give such a wonderfully palpable sense of this long and affectionate relationship, and suddenly it's just broken. In, and the nurse is acting in what she thinks are the best interest, but Juliet feels utterly betrayed. It's a really startling moment in this production, I think. It's and, an amazing. There's an amazing shift in the language Juliet uses with the nurse. That in the first scene, when we meet Juliet and the nurse and Lady Capulet. There's an informality between Juliet and the nurse. And yes. Um, uh, you know, they've, they've got a very easy connection. You can hear it in the way they talk with each other. And then when her mother arrives, oh. Juliet becomes extremely formal. Very stilted, isn't very it? Very stilted. Yeah. And in the moment when Juliet, um, just before Juliet takes the, the, the potion and the nurse and her mother leave her on her own in yes. her bedroom... She has a line to the nurse that is spoken like exactly like she speaks to her mother in the oh. first scene. And it's just, you can hear it in the rhythm, you can hear it in the specificity of the language. And this is why it's, you know, hearing, hearing these guys talk about... Um, I, I, absolutely right, everything we get is from the text. Yes. And that was just the perfect clue into what that break was. And in, that's the brilliance of Shakespeare. Yes. He, he tells us something has changed forever with their relationship. And again, from watching it from a spectator's point of view, you get that, absolutely. You think, that's it, something has ruptured and... If one doesn't know the end of the play, one's not quite sure if this can be fixed again, but it's a massive rupture. Isabel, I'm going to put you on the spot now, but here we go. Why exactly do Romeo and Juliet fall in love at first sight? Is it purely physical? Or is it linguistic? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I think, like, like, one of the things that I most savour in this production is that we we have a long period of time where Romeo and Juliet are connecting across the space at the party before they are ever physically proximate. Right. And um, even yeah. before they begin to speak to one another. Yes. And of course, I mean we when we started working on that on the, the perfect sonnet when they when they first meet and the pilgrims' hands and all this, like the language, you can tell that it's more than just physical. It's it's um we talk, we've talked over the over the course of making this show about um, the images that people choose um, when they speak, that characters right. choose. Okay. Um, so Juliet uses, for instance, a lot of classical imagery, and that told me a lot about you know what kind of books she's reading and <laughs> what kind of imaginary friends she has. You know, so we talk about fate and all this. But but I think. Romeo doesn't strike me as much of a reader. I might be wrong there. Maybe less so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Juliet's read more novels, definitely. <laughs> I like to think so. I'll defend to Joel. Um, but yeah, and I think, I think hearing, hearing Romeo's language is one of the things that really, I think, affects her most deeply. Right. And getting to know his imagination through that yes. is, is so magical and so vital. But then also there is just that... Whatever it is, and we, we find it every night of when we first catch eyes and then we sit on the front of the stage and there's action going on behind us. So it's not, we're not in major in that moment. Yes. But we're just taking a first look at each other and it's and electric. Yeah. And that's, that's before, you know, any kind of kissing and all that business. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And this is a question for, for all four of you. As I know this is an aspect of theatre that fascinates a lot of people and they always want to know more about it. And you, you folks who are on the inside maybe don't 
don't understand, well, not don't understand, don't appreciate how much people want to know this. So I was wondering if you might give us an insight into the rehearsal process and how you all went about working on the key themes and ideas that you bring out in the production during rehearsals. I'm always asked, what do actors do? And, what, and so people want to know more about rehearsals. Kimberly, tell us, how did you, how did you set that up, first of all? Um, specifically with Shakespeare, um, it's to not assume that everybody, that Shakespeare is everybody's first language. Right. So yep. there's a process of shared translation <laughs> that I think is really necessary for everybody to um, go through together. Right. And that's, uh, for me, it's really important that that happens with the whole ensemble. Right. So at least the first week of rehearsal is everybody in the room before we then do more specific calls with people who are just in, in the scenes. Right. Um, and what that does is it does two things. One, it, it, it demystifies the language and demystifies the text. Yeah. And it means that it's really important, I think, that everybody knows exactly what they're saying. Yes, yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that the audience have to understand every single word. But if the audience trusts that we understand Absolutely. every single word, then Absolutely. they'll feel, by understanding the word, we can talk about what's going on humanly in that moment. Yeah. And I'm not, ma you know, we don't go into massive detail on, um, you know, um, trochees and spondees and other kind of, um, you know, uh, technical names for, 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 for classical rhetoric. Um, uh, it's, uh, but we do look for those clues, and those clues tell us what's happening to that human being in that moment. Right. So when a mid, you know, we'll look at things like, you know, when there's a punctuation in the middle of a line, it's a midline caesura, yeah. and that is often a change of thought. And when a right. character changes thought in the middle of a line, it tells us that their heart is, something's happened to their breath, something has happened to their heart. Yes. So they're not going de dum 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 full stop. That is when somebody's quite sure of themselves. Yes. So you look for all of these little clues that tell you what's extraordinary about what this human being is experiencing at this moment in time and how they're articulating that. Right. And we spend a lot of time looking for those clues together. When we do that as an ensemble, it also allows us to have conversations about themes right. and to start putting things up on the wall about, well, oh, isn't that interesting? We've talked about narcissistic parents quite a lot today. <laughs> right. Should we put that yeah. up as a title? Should <laughs> we just have that in the room as something for us all to reflect upon? Before the, the actors joined us, Kimberly and I were talking about um, Verona 11 years after this, this seismic earthquake mm. and the society and so on. How did the three of you, you actors, how did you work on that sense of the society in rehearsal, the sort of place Verona was? Maybe, Emma, we'll start with, with you. What, how did you feel you, that you were getting to grips with the sense of this society of Verona? Um, <clears throat> well, we did, we did quite a lot of work on the sort of physical side of things like physicality how you'd feel coming out of sort of trauma and we, we did quite a lot of physical exercises which I found really useful and right um we thought about the status within the society you know the different the different sort of levels every and and how people operate um right and tell us a bit more about that physicality I'm interested so these all these characters have been through trauma so how has that affected them how has that affected the way they carry themselves well, yeah, exactly. We, we we just sort of discussed that, and we did. There was there was a moment when we we had the earthquake moment, didn't we, Kim? When we were going to have a sort of moment where everyone was sort of reliving the earthquake almost um, 
through their bodies and kind of like that, that, that sense memory being with you. So we just did, we did some work on that. We also did, uh, and brilliant talking about a love and hate thing, we did an exercise with masks, which was amazing, where we had to draw a, 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 a mask, one side love, our version of love, and the other side a version of hate. Oh. And then you'd show that to someone else and you'd respond to that physically, that image that someone was seeing. And that's quite interesting how your body kind of responds if you see something which is a powerful image of love or a powerful image of hate, what your body does. So that all fed into, like, the work we did. and Because Miss Verona like, is a place of extremes, isn't it? There's not much middle ground. It's love or hate. It's, it's, it's sort of it's quite, it's quite a heightened place. Isabel, tell us a bit of your experience of rehearsals and finding out about this society of Verona following up from what Emma's just said. Mm. What did you discover in rehearsals? Yeah, it's astonishing how quickly they flip. And I found that particularly with Juliet between love and hate, right. even in the course of a, a you know a sentence in her case, um, particularly later on after Tybalt's murder, um, and yeah, I mean, so so for her, she's obviously she's one of the youngest people in the in the play, and so the memory of the earthquake is less present, right? But the legacy of the earthquake is manifest everywhere. And um, I had, I had a, my aunt came to see the show the other day and she was like, why don't Romeo and Juliet just run away? Like, why don't they just leave Verona? And I, and I was like, it's, it's almost like it's a sort of gated community. I don't think they would last a, a second outside Verona, despite barely lasting within it, you know? Yes. Um, it's, it's this incredibly sort of, it's, a, it's this isolated world. And, and one of the things that I found so useful was, was these sort of co- um, different touch points that we had. Um, Kim sent us some... Uh, some TV shows, some uh, documentaries, some book recommendations before we came in. Right. It's obviously optional, but like they were so helpful to start exploring those ideas. Give, give us a taste. Give a couple of Kim's, Kimberly's recommendations. What did she? Oh, of, so, what, was um, your, what was on your reading list? One of my favourites was um, Love in Colour, which is a set of short stories um, based on uh, like myths from around the world, but kind of reworked. Um, and they're all love love myths basically right um and yeah some of the it was oh it was uncanny how much language was echoed like just single or ideas just bounced off the place so beautifully and just really illuminated yes exploring falling in love and then um the why we hate is it called why we hate yeah yeah documentary series was so so interesting about what motivates people to hate, how they view it. They interview, you know, all these different people who are are these kind of very ardent members of certain communities, be that football or be that an extremist church or, you know, political things. And it it just, it really broke open so much of, so much of the play and so much of what motivates what was seemingly quite senseless actions in, in some moments in the show. Kimberly and I, in our discussion, talked about this idea of everybody in Verona being in this preternatural haste all the time. Everybody's rushing about making these almighty decisions very quickly. I'd love to hear the thoughts of the three of you on this haste. Why is everyone in such a rush? Michelle, maybe we'll start with you. Why Why can no one take a breath and really consider what they're about to do? I think it shows... I mean, the thing is, sometimes when people watch Romeo and Juliet, it's just like, they're young, everyone's young. But it's not. People make really rash decisions. Like Lord Capulet makes a decision. Grind, you know, they're going to get married Thursday. Let's do it. I think um, in terms of... It just seems like Kimberly used to say quite a lot, this is a snapshot of these people. You know what I mean? It, this is not just how they live their whole lives. This is, you know, just a couple days. And I think it just shows... It feels like building blocks. People just, it, in terms of my character and things like that, it, it just feels like 
everything people are running away with themselves people are like yes. you know I must find them I must see them I must do this and those decisions I feel like it, it culminates in the death of Mercutio and Tybalt those all those decisions and there is like an explosion and then people instead of slowing down to be like what have we just Take done stock, they go yeah. faster and yeah. they don't reflect on you know and by the end there's you know there's one two three four it's five people who are dead yeah. in four days. Um, four days? Yeah. Six yeah. people who are dead, isn't Including it? Lady Montague, yeah. yeah. Who oh, dies six, of a broken yeah. heart. Right, so that's the haste. So Emma, as the nurse, the nurse is, is the oldest of the three actors here playing the oldest, longest-standing character of Verona. So, Emma, we'll have to come to you. Has everyone in Verona always been in such a, in such a hurry? We've been talking about the hurry everyone's in in the play, but it's over four days. Has everyone always been in such a hurry in Verona? Or indeed, when did they start hurrying about so much? Yeah, I don't know. It's, interesting. it's an interesting question. I think, as Michelle just said, this, this, this kind of play takes place over a, a course of a few days and it feels like there's a fever in the air. Like there's a kind of like, everyone's just desperate to get somewhere. And I think from the nurse's point of view, she latches onto the, the, the positives and the hope and the joy that Juliet's going to have and, 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 and catches onto this love vibe that is you yes. know, flying around. And I think that... that there's a kind of sense that everyone's trying to get some sort of positivity or something that is hopeful out of this society, which has been, you know, damaged and, and, and wrecked. I hope you can hear me all right. It says my internet connection. Yeah, no, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 th I feel like they're all just trying to get to a place that they, they're going to be happy in. That's so the, the driving force. Like, let's get to somewhere that's good again. Let's build from the earth again. Let's go back to, like... That's what my sense of it. And then it all goes crashingly wrong because there's too many things d done in a, in a massive haste. So the nurse is using haste. I like that. I like that thought, Emma. So the nurse is using her haste. First of all, positively, let's... Juliet's fallen in love, right? Let's just speed this all along. So much has gone wrong. We'll, in haste, we'll do something happy. But the, the happy thing, unfortunately, just unravels and then haste takes on and haste flips and becomes negative. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's been there's been a period of peace yeah. in this Verona, and um, you know when you hear um, Capulet talking to Paris in the first scene, he says um, Montague is bound as well as I in penalty alike, and tis not tis not hard I think for men as old as we to keep the peace. <laughs> you know, there's a sense of and, and Paris says it's a shame tis a shame that you've been at odds so long, and 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 there is a sense of I think of. Um, there has been there has been a period of kind of pretend peace in our in our production. The Capulet and the Montague sword are, are are encased in glass on the set as a as a symbol of a peace treaty of them saying we're not going to fight anymore. We were fighting. We were at war. We there was this huge tragedy. It was a great equaliser. We all tried. We've all been trying to do better. Um, and and. It, what the point at which we come into this Verona, being 11 years after this point, is when it's all starting to rear its ugly head again. Yes, yeah. So we know that this, the start of the play is the third civil brawl. So there's been a sense right. that something's coming back. You know, yeah. you can feel it now, right? Yeah. When you hear about awful things happening on buses yeah. and, 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 and racist abuse and homophobic abuse and any kind of fear of a fear of difference difference and the violence that comes out with that and you can feel it bubbling up all around you and I think that's yeah. 
what this Verona, what's happening in this Verona. They've suppressed all the bad stuff for, for a long time. Pretended and it's, it's just not there. coming. Exactly. Yeah. Now we're going to have very briefly. We're going to have I don't know, we're have a quick fire round because mm. I'd like each of you to tell me if you could one preconception with which you came into this this production, the rehearsals and so on. One preconception you had about the play of Romeo and Juliet, and a preconception that was either altered completely or confirmed. Absolutely. You always thought one thing, and actually after this, I think something different. Or indeed, I always thought this, and, and this process has absolutely confirmed me in, that I was correct in always thinking this. I think we'll start with a director who's had more time to think about <laughs> all the play in, in 360 degrees. Kimberly, I know, for example, you've directed Romeo and Juliet once before this, haven't you? So when you did that production, for example, did you think, going, going forward, if I were to do this again... I'd do something slightly differently or I'd absolutely hammer home this point. Or, or did you think, no, I, I know what I'm doing now and I, will, I would sort of carry on the same lines? Yeah, I mean, so, so the other version I did, it was a three-hander version. Oh, my goodness. It was a three-hander wow. for Box Clever Theatre. And I guess what I learnt, I guess always with Romeo and Juliet, what I've been interested in is... Um, is that it's not fate, is that there's nothing star-crossed about Romeo and Juliet. There's nothing um, that's not preventable. Right. And They control their destiny. Though. They control their destiny, okay. and um, the people around them control their destiny. And people... And I guess I've always been interested in looking at the story through the lens of, like... That event there, if that hadn't have happened, right. then this could have prevented... It feels a bit like a goosebumps book, that you're kind of going, yeah. if, you want to go, if you want to go through this door, turn to page 64. <laughs> if you want to go through that door, turn to page 22. And you kind yes. of go, oh, that one decision. Yes. And then you get it and you go, uh-uh, sorry, everyone's dead. <laughs> and, and so you're trying to find... You try, you know, you're trying to find what all those events are... Um, and so everyone, if everybody, uh, so the decisions could have gone the other way and then we'd be in a different choose-your-own-adventure book in which Verona yeah. was a calm and peaceful place. No, absolutely. Or, yeah. And I guess the thing that surprised me in this process is more of a... I think I feel like I have more of an understanding and a compassion for those decisions that characters make in very difficult circumstances that result in the deaths. Okay. So I, I feel like I came into the process assuming that it was all the parents' fault. Right. And that it was, like, all the adults' fault. Mm-hmm. And I... And, and throughout... And now I think I look at it and see why decisions are made, why the adults make certain decisions and right. where that comes from and it means that you come out of it a bit more frustrated right. and pulling your hair out because there's less of an answer as to how to right. <laughs> solve the problem and how to change the world. Right, but okay. I think they make... The, I, I, it's a puzzle. I think Romeo and Juliet is a puzzle. Yeah. It, yeah. Lovely. Isabel, did you come into this with preconceptions that have either been confirmed or subverted? Yeah, I think, I think honestly, the, the big one for me... 
I hadn't seen a production before and I hadn't studied it in great detail. Obviously, you know, we all think we know the story. Yeah. Um, so there were lots of things that I was finding in you and learning. Well, lovely. And so it's coming comparatively fresh. I should imagine that there's a real benefit to that. Yeah, I yeah. think so. I think so. And And I guess, like... I kind of, before really getting to grips with the text, I sort of just thought of Juliet as being a bit of a sap. Because when you (laughs) have to admit it, you know, when you just think about the sort of the headlines of the play, it's like, oh, she falls in love with someone and then, you know, she dies and you just kind of go, oh, yeah. But, oh, my gosh, like, actually starting to look at the journey that she goes on and particularly the journey of that second half and the way that we've, the way that it's been cut and the way that it's been staged now. It's a, I mean, it's a runaway train and so much of it is her just responding in the moment as we've been discussing yes. you know it's yes it's very spontaneous she doesn't always make the right call but the agency and the yeah. and the the passion and the courage that she has and her growing up you can see her kind of grow up over these five acts and four days yeah. can't you she becomes a, a, a grown up she has to make her own life literally life or death decisions exactly that exactly so that. good so you thought she was a sap now you think she's the opposite break of michelle did you want well, anything with you that you came into this with and left either with or without mm. well to be honest and i i we had this chat actually week one and stuff like that i i didn't grow up with shakespeare it wasn't sure. it just shakespeare felt to me a very closed off world it just it just it didn't feel open to me and it it didn't feel like it just it, sometimes it like you know it did feel quite elitist and it did feel like I this was a world that I'm not really allowed into and therefore then I closed myself off to Shakespeare and I'm like I'm not good at this I don't know I don't you know whatever I find it difficult so when I got the audition I was like oh jeez I was oh no I, and I was like oh no how am I even supposed to learn that you know what I mean and I've I've only been in one other Shakespeare show and and I do, you know, I was like, I'm going to be found out. Nothing <laughs> about Shakespeare. Well, no um, one's, if you are, which I don't think you are, no one's found you out yet. Yeah. So I think you're doing um, very well. And I think it really, every, you know what I mean, this is the second production I've been in. And and it just does change your mind. Yeah. I remember thinking like, oh, Romeo and Juliet, it's not, it's not, it's not one of my favourite Shakespeare's and stuff like that. And now I've come out of it being like, I really enjoy it and I really enjoy the language sure. and it doesn't feel closed off to me. And that's why I want more people who are more like whole communities that it does feel closed off to and that you're like, oh, this isn't for me, therefore I'm not going to engage with it. Yeah. That it is for you and the stories are for you and you can really get a lot out of it. Um, and this is why I love... Shakespeare becoming more accessible to people and I think we need to just continue to do that because you'll get a whole you'll get do you know what you'll get a better audience you will and you'll get like a a more diverse audience you'll get a more younger audience that that feel like oh this isn't for me but it is so that's lovely Emma what what about you what thoughts did you go into rehearsals and the production with and what have you come out with any any preconceptions overturned I think obviously the nurse is an iconic role and when I I got off of the part of thinking, well, she's 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 fun, and a lot of people say, oh, it's, that's sort of the comic part, isn't it? That's the kind of you know light relief, and and that's and, and I, I kind of came into it thinking, oh, she's she's funny and she's full of joy, but I hadn't I hadn't really thought about and looked at the play before in detail and known about the the fact that she'd lost this daughter in 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 the the earthquake eleven years previously, and there's a lot of. Um, grief that she's gone through a huge amount of grief and i think her kind of robust kind of joyous approach to things comes out of a sense of um needing to find positivity in hope out of grief and so that was a really big discovery for me and then the fact that the play itself there's so much 
obviously love within the play, but then there's, there's, there's grief and sadness and how people deal with that. And I think that the, that the second half of the play is, is, quite, is, is quite dark and dramatic, but actually that is a, it's a revelation, but it's a sort of wonderful revelation because it's a play that sort of offers a spectrum of emotions. And I just think coming to the nurse, I hadn't realized how much she'd been through really. But and, she's and, such and a rich a, character, there's such hinterland it's, it's with the nurse. It's a rich character, it's not yeah. just, you know, to me, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So that no. was a real discovery. Wow, so there's been a, been a lot discovered all mm. the way around. I'd like us to end with a wild burst of extra textual speculation. Ooh. In what possible version of Verona could there have been a happy ending to this play? <gasps> Kimberly, we'll start mm. with you. I always pick on the director first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Um... Could there, is there a version, is there, is there a Verona in which this play could have ended well? I always think about what would have happened if Romeo and Juliet had managed to live just long enough to conceive ah. and what would happen if a baby, if a new, brand new, completely innocent baby was introduced oh to the Capulets and the Montagues that was both of their blood put together. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. And yeah. whether that would... Can you... Would they have killed their own blood? Mm. That's so good question. But I guess that also means, like, what kind of a Verona would allow Romeo and Juliet to live long enough to be able to do that? Well, there might have been I a... I think civ- you should write this, Kim. I think you should write this play, The Baby. Mm. <laughs> I think there'd have been a civil brawl about whether the child had a double-barrelled surname and would it be Capulet, Montague, or Mar... Oh, my goodness. Isabel, is there a world in which this could have ended well? I was thinking about... Yeah, I was thinking about that baby, that hypothetical baby. Um, oh, I don't know. I think, I think from Juliet's point of view, she finds her power so rapidly over the course of a few days and it doesn't it doesn't serve her that well so i mean i can only imagine a world where she married paris and they stayed alive you know yeah deeply unhappy like most other people in verona it seems but romeo and juliet couldn't have sort of carried on and and been all right and we couldn't have tuned in with them 50 years time and found them sort of tending their garden and growing runner beans or Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's so much more that we could talk about here, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for because the actors need to go and warm up for the actual show now. <laughs> I'd like to say very many thanks for such illuminating insights to Kimberly Sykes, Isabel Adamaka Young, Emma Cuniff, and Michelle Fox. Thank you very Thank much. You very Thank much. you. For more information about Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, visit openairtheatre.com or subscribe to our podcast.